Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is risen, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Well, let me also pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would make much of yourself. Father, we pray that your spirit would come and help us to see who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Father, we want to give you all the glory, all the praise this morning. And so we just pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of factors, I think, that play into the way we view ourselves, the way we live, and the way we change as individuals. But I think one of the issues at the heart of that, foundational to the way we think and live, is our identity. It's our identity. Now, I was helped by Tim Keller in this. He, he talks about identity as being two things. Identity is first off made of yourself. It's your self-understanding. You, you need a core you. You need to understand who you are so that regardless of what situation you find yourself in, you're not changing and fluctuating all the time. So you might be a father, a husband, an employer, an athlete, but, but who is it that you are kind of underneath all of that? Who is it that roots you and, and grounds you? Now, the way we have understood ourself has changed over time. So traditionally, and this is still the case in many non-Western civilizations, the way you understood yourself was in relationship to your community. You understood yourself in a way where you could actually serve the well-being of those around you. So, so if you were born into a farming family, well, then you would become a farmer. You needed to do your part so that those around you would flourish. Uh, our self was made up of our duties. You were your duties. Well, in modern times, in, in our Western culture today, we, we don't kind of get our cues for our, our self based on our community. Actually, we determine our own understanding. I do what I want to do. I look deep down into my heart, and I, I wrestle with who I want to become, and then I try to live that out in the world. I'm not my duties. I'm my dreams. Now, while the way we've understood ourselves, our self-understanding has changed over time, the second aspect of our identity is our worth. It's our worth. And our, the way we have viewed and perceived our worth has actually remained fairly consistent. Sure, formerly, I understood my, my worth and my value based on how well I lived up to society's expectations of me. 
And, and that's not maybe the case for us today. We, we determine our worth based on how well I live up to my own desires of who I want to be. But it's, this is the problem still. At the heart of that is, is this issue. It's that we have to earn still our identity. We earn our worth. And so that's equally as devastating. Our value and our dignity is an important part of who we are. I don't want to say you shouldn't have a self-worth or self-esteem. Those are good things, essential things, actually, I would argue. They provide purpose for what we do. They validate our existence. They give us a sense of security and peace when I can live out of a feeling of having dignity. But if we earn our worth, it's crushing. See, what if I don't live up to my society's expectations of who I should be? See, if, if we become a self-made people, then we also need to be a self-maintained people which means we're always going to be running on the hamster wheel of life, feeling like we just are almost there, and yet we never arrive. Madonna, I know I'm quoting Madonna in a sermon. It feels awkward. She talked about this never-ending pursuit of wanting to feel adequate. She said this, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I pushed past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, hear this, Christ said, even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. See, if you're worth is wrapped up in your beauty, in your success, in your wealth, or your popularity, or influence, then you better not let those aspects of your life dip, because your worth will also dip. The irony here uh, of what Madonna said is that she, she gave this quote to uh, Vanity Fair magazine. If you're familiar with the language of vanity in the Bible, it's this idea of emptiness. How empty and fleeting is being a self-made person? See, if we achieve our worth, it's crushing, not just for us as individuals, but also for the community and the relationships around us. I actually think this is why Paul is writing this section in 1 Corinthians. See, Paul, at the time of this writing, is in the city of Ephesus. And he gets a report of what's going on here in Corinth, in this church. And so we read this in verses 10 and 11. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. See, what's happened is that this Corinthian church has imported their city's worldview into their own community. They've begun to play the status game. They're trying to climb the social ladder. And the way they're doing this is by the people they're identifying with. So one person says, hey, hey, you need to know something. I'm a follower of Paul, you know, the apostle to the Gentile. So I'm a, I'm a pretty big deal. Another person goes, well, okay, that's great. But I follow Apollos. Paul's no preacher like Apollos is. And then some other guy comes along and he's like, well, I follow Cephas. You know, Peter, the, the leader of the apostles, he's my guy. And then you hear someone will be like, I follow Jesus. Woo! And they're trying to kind of build up their reputation by, by kind of who they're identifying with. And so what happens is that kind of our worth becomes a comparison game. Becomes a comparison game. See, See, they used to be small fish in the big sea of Corinth. We'll find that out in a few minutes here. They were unimpressive individuals compared to what Corinth had to offer. But then all of a sudden, they're in this new community. And they have this new chance to kind of be big fish in this small church. See, it's one thing to be wise, but the, the point isn't to be wise. The point is to be wiser than whoever else you're looking at. It's one thing to be powerful, but it's one thing to be more powerful. That, that's the name of the game. It's a comparison game. So to, to quote one Corinthian poet, harder, better, faster, stronger. That's daftus punkus. Right? It's just, it's just me being better than you. And so, of course, that would bring disunity in the church. See, this is what happens. If I stake my identity based on what I view to be valuable, then you come along with your social issue, and immediately I have to put you down. Because I can't let that thing be more important than my thing, or else my worth becomes less important than your worth. So there's infighting. Even if we were able to agree, all of a sudden I see you succeeding in whatever sphere of life that is. Well, I can't have that. I can't praise that because if you're climbing up the ladder, that means I'm going down the ladder. And so it's as though life were this pie and our worth was dependent on how much of the pie can we get. So we work ourselves to the bone. I crush you if you get in my way. And so Paul writes this letter and he says, what if we didn't have to earn our self-worth? What if our identity was received instead of achieved? What if our value and significance was freely given to us by Jesus? What if Jesus were a pie factory and you get a pie and you get a pie and you get a pie? 
I want to look at three things this morning in regard to our identity. The reversal of our identity, the reception of our identity, and the response of our new identity. So first, this reversal. Look at verses 26 and onward. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." Notice this reversal of fates for the impressive and the unimpressive. You you came to Corinth to make a name of yourself. Corinth was this growing city, and so it kind of allowed you to climb up the social ladder and to prove your worth by hard work and ingenuity. So basically, you want to garner wisdom. If you could just be wise enough, if you knew how the city worked, if you could figure out how to win at the game, well, then you would achieve flourishing and happiness. If you could just be powerful enough, if you could just have enough people working for you, if you could be influential and make decisions in the society at large, well, then you would find security and peace. If you could be noble, if you could be a somebody, well, then people would respect you. And you could do certain things, and certain doors would open for you, and you could associate with certain people that were normally off-limits to the rest of society. But, but notice their fate. It says this in verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This language of shaming or bringing to nothing, when we we hear that language in the rest of the Bible, it, it speaks of this end time, kind of ultimate determination that God will give on people who have rejected him. They'll they'll be shamed and brought to nothing. So these wise individuals thought they'd experience flourishing, but the reality, Paul says, is that they're actually cut off from the God who is good and beautiful. They thought power would bring security, but they stand before the all-powerful God and they see their helplessness. They thought their nobility would open doors for them, but they stand before God, and Jesus shuts the gates into heaven, into everlasting life. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, once said, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Let me say that again. The praise of the praiseworthy one is above all rewards. The idea is that if only the person we look up to, if only the person we esteem and want to be like, if only that person would look at us and declare, yeah, I accept you. 
Way to go. I, I approve of who you've become. If only that would happen, we would finally feel good about ourselves. That would be the greatest reward. Well, what happens here is that these individuals who wanted to be self-made people stand before God. They see him in all of his beauty and splendor and the goodness of him. And they say, you're ultimately the person I've been trying to be like. You're my standard for all of life. Would you just approve of me? And all they hear is silence. He sends them away. So who is it that receives his praise? Verse 26 says again, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God calls to himself those individuals the world deems unimpressive. Now what I find interesting here is that Paul doesn't really soften what the world thinks of these people. Right? Like, that would be my approach. Like, someone says, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really that great. I'm not that wise. I'm not that powerful. I'm not that big of a deal. And I would come alongside of them and be like, hey, yeah, but, like, there's these redeeming qualities about you. And I'd try to dig deep and find some of those redeeming qualities. That's not what Paul does here. Paul actually double downs on what the world thinks of them. He, he, he goes on in verse 27. He goes, yeah, God chose what is foolish. You are foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak. Yeah, you are weak. But God chose them to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, three times, it's like we have three strikes against us. We are foolish, we're not that powerful, and we're not that important. But then three times, God echoes back, but louder, but I choose you, but I choose you, but I choose you. See, see we are not what we do, we are what God chooses us to be. God's choosing power is greater than your unworthiness. That language in verse 28, where it says God chose what is low, that word low could literally be translated unborn or lowborn. That word for things that are not, it's like Paul's saying, it's like you don't even exist in the eyes of the world. Like if a historian was to write about the world, your name would not get brought up. No one would remember you, Paul says. But God will. In the Gospel of Mark, we have this very marvelous encounter that Jesus has with a blind beggar. Jesus, in Mark 10, is walking out of Jericho, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Let's just say this. 
he has some important things to do in Jerusalem, like the triumphal entry, like the Last Supper, like dying on the cross and rising again. So, you know, he's got his mind elsewhere. He's on his way out of Jericho, and all of a sudden, there's this blind beggar who starts calling out to him. Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. It's like he doesn't, he doesn't see Jesus walking by, but he hears all the commotion. He asks who this person is, and he realizes that this is his only chance. Like This is the one time that the Savior of the world will be walking in front of him. And so he's, he's crying out for Jesus, and, and what happens is that the crowd comes to him, and they're like, shh, settle down. Jesus has, has more important things to do. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody stops for you. Why, why do you think Jesus would, would stop for you? But he continues to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what happens? Jesus stops for him. He goes beyond that. He actually calls to him. And then he heals him. See, I... I think my favorite part of the story, though, is that Mark names him. He writes his name down for all of history to know him. His name is Bartimaeus. I love the way one theologian put it. He says, the world would have put him as part of the anonymous conglomerate. That's all he would have been, the anonymous conglomerate. But to Jesus, he's given a name, value, and dignity. I've been having a lot of conversations with people lately, and it feels like a lot of people are struggling. Like, they don't, they don't feel like they're able to do what they once were able to do. Their capacities have shrunk. They're struggling with a lot of mental health issues. You need to know that Jesus doesn't look at you now and start doubting why he chose you. He chose you while you were weak. While you were low and despised in the world, he's not, he's not shocked that you're struggling and doubting his election of you. Now, some of you, though, are struggling not, just, not with what you can't do, but maybe what you have done. You, you look at your sin, the ways you've fallen short, the way you've messed up in this world. And you go, I don't... I, I, I just don't know if that God would take me. You cannot, please hear me, you cannot out the cross of Christ. He picks those who are low and despised in the world. For goodness sakes, the person who wrote this letter is Paul, who God chose, who used to be a murderer and a rebel and wanted to crush Christianity. Those are the people God delights in choosing so that they might not boast in and of themselves, but boast in him. Now, here's what I know. In verse 26, when it says, uh, consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were of noble birth. Well, I recognize, speaking to Brett, none of the other pastors here, talking to some of you, There are actually a lot of people here who are wise, are powerful, and are a big deal in this society. 
right? That, you've done that through godly means, Brett's told me. Like, right? like there, there's a lot of us here who are those people. Now, you need to know something. When God is choosing the weak and the lowly, it's not that he's uh, kind of excluding the wise and the powerful. What God's doing is he's declaring something about his identity, what God's trying to show is that he's the infinite one, we're the finite ones, and that we are unable to kind of bridge that gap in and of ourselves. God has to be the one who brings us to him. And so when we come to Jesus, we all come as people who receive, not as people who give to him. Right? So it's interesting, in verse 26, he uses this language of not many, but then in verse 29, he says, no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one, no matter if you are wise and powerful and noble, you still won't be able to boast in the presence of God. And I think there's a couple reasons why. The first one is this. Even if you are impressive, even if the world has ascribed to you some value of worth, even that is a gift from God. Now, please look at me here. I know that that's offensive to many of you. I know that it's offensive because you have worked hard. You have pushed through those trials and difficulties, right? You, you've, you've worked yourself. You've poured out your life to, to become someone. But I think if you're honest with yourself, let's try to be honest right now, you, you recognize that many of those abilities, you, you didn't achieve those on your own. They, they were gifts from God. Like, like, you didn't determine which parents you'd be born from and, and your DNA structure. You, you, some, of you had, some of you had good parents, and, and that's why they kind of created an environment that allowed you to succeed in life. Look, some of you had bad parents, and that's why you're so driven and wanted to kind of overcome their status and, and make a name for yourself. Those, those business deals that you struck, those advertisements that people saw you with, like the, the, the friendships that you've created, the, 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 the time that you have based on the number of kids you have and the temperament of your kids, like all of those factors of your life have been determined by God. And thus, God is actually the one who has given you even this worldly status that you have achieved. So we come before him and we go, God, I don't boast. Because those things are from you. The second reason why I think no one is able to boast before the Lord is that if we dig down, we recognize that we have done shameful things. Even if you are somebody there are certain things that you would want no one to know about. And that if the world knew about those things, how much less of you would they think? But God sees those things. And God still chose you. And so when we stand in the presence of God and our lives are laid before him, all that we do is we cling to grace and mercy. It's undeserved, God. You see my messed up broken life. It's all because of you. Thank you, Jesus. I boast in you. I, we do not boast in and of ourselves. So consider your calling. Where were you when God called you? <laughs> what did God call you out of? 
Our worth is not self-earned. Our worth is wrapped up in the fact that the praiseworthy one has called our name. Secondly, we've got to do this a lot quicker. Okay, our worth is from Jesus, point one. There's this reversal of our worth. But secondly, even our core, our identity, is something we receive from Jesus. So look at verse 30. Because of him, because of him, or from him, literally, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When the Bible here is talking about the fact that we are in Christ Jesus, the idea is that we are united with him. So when God the Father looks at us, it's as though the person he sees is the very Son of God. It's as though he, he sees Jesus, right? We're, we're the second page of that carbon paper packet, and whatever God has done, he's kind of imprinted onto us. His credentials become our credentials, we are united with him, and so God views us in a different light. Look at what we hear that Jesus has given us, what we've received from him. It says, he became to us, first off, wisdom. Wisdom. We were once foolish, not really understanding how we might go about achieving a life that is good and joy-filled, a life of flourishing. And then Jesus comes along and he dies on the cross and says, this is how you achieve the good life. You don't, you don't achieve the good life by making much of yourself. Actually, you're free to lay down your life. You, you give your life for the sake of others and you trust in me. You let your security be, be found in me and, and what I've done. Secondly, he's given us righteousness. He became to us righteousness. We used to justify our existence. We, we used to try to accumulate these good deeds, hoping that if we could just present those to God, we would be found right in his eyes. But here Paul says, no, 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 Jesus lived the life we should have lived for us. He's the only perfectly obedient one. He's the only one who's truly worthy. And so we're accepted based on his deeds and not our own. See, I think one of the things we're tempted to believe is that if we could just stop caring about what other people thought of us, if, if we could just even maybe cut God out of the picture and not have this judge kind of looking down on us, evaluating what we do and what we don't do, if, if we could just kind of be our own judges, then we wouldn't have to be worried in this life. we just go out, everything would be kumbaya, and just we'd feel good about ourselves finally. Well, I think it's very interesting. Arthur Miller he famously was married to Marilyn Monroe. He was an American playwright who wrote uh, the play After the Fall. In this play, he um, is speaking from the point of a narrator, Quentin, who's an atheist, and he's kind of evaluating his life. And so he says this. This is someone who's cut God out of the picture. You know, more and more, I think that for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart, then what a good lover you are, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. 
that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, who knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyways. Listen, listen, listen. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. He's cut God from the picture. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself. (laughs) This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. He says, even when no one was judging me, even when I couldn't stop, even when no one was looking at me, I couldn't stop judging myself. I struggled to live up to my own standards for myself. See, the solution isn't to cut people out from judging us, isn't to cut God out from the picture so that no one is evaluating us. Actually, the solution to our feeling of self-worth and inadequacy is to put God as judge. We, We put him on the seat, and then we say, hey, Jesus, would you stand in my place? So that God then looks at Jesus and says, based on his deeds, I view you as right in my eyes. You're clear. You're good. You have a place before me. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. Thirdly, he's our sanctification. Elsewhere in the Bible, this language of sanctification is used to talk about kind of progressive holiness. We kind of grow in our cleanliness before God, if you will. But here, what the Bible is, I think, saying is that we have actually been given a state of holiness, right? So Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, he, he took away our sins and our wrongdoing so that we're presented before God as holy, as pure. Lastly, he became our redemption, This language of redemption is this language of buying someone, of of purchasing something so that they're transferred out of their former state into this new state, right? So in the Old Testament, this is used to speak of Israel who was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. In the New Testament, we hear of redemption as being our kind of transfer out of the domain of darkness into God's kingdom, into the kingdom of light. And so it just, it just reminded me of this situation. I was um, walking down Main Street with my wife a few weeks ago. We uh, drove in from Surrey, so you never know if you're going to be 20 minutes late or 20 minutes early. We happened to be 20 minutes early and had some time to kill before our dinner reservation. We're walking down Main Street, and we walk into this kind of secondhand furniture store. We're just walking around, finally we kind of get to the back corner of the store, and we see this coffee table. Honestly, I don't even know why it caught my eye. It's not really that impressive. We have all the coffee tables we need at our home, but I, but I saw this coffee table. It was dinged up. The leg was kind of squeaking and and falling off. There's actually a bunch of other furniture that had been put on it. The varnish is fading. There's scratches on the top of it. And for some reason, I have no idea why, it was $10,000. And I'm like, that's wrong. So I go up to the manager and I was like, hey, can, how about I give you like 50 bucks for this table? I don't know why I wanted this table. 
And, I was, and, the, and the manager's like, no, no, sorry, that it's $10,000. I was like, okay, well, why in the world is this thing $10,000? Like, did it belong to someone famous? What's the backstory? Is there like a gold in the inside? Like, what's, what's the deal with this table? And he's like, no, that's just what the owner decided to listen as $10,000. And my wife is like, I remember she's there with me. She's like, why are you haggling over this table? We don't, we don't need this, this junk. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know why. I just, I really want it. And, 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 and so I buy it. We load it up into our, our van. The guy kind of helps us load it in, and then we, we go for dinner. Of course that didn't happen. <laughs> Look, if, if furniture is either not Swedish, i.e. from Ikea, or bought from Facebook Marketplace, most of the time it's both. We, we don't buy furniture otherwise. We, we don't buy anything for $10,000, never less a piece of junk. Now, here, here's... I'm not, I wasn't trying to be dishonest or not. Oh, this, can we trust this guy? I never know. Okay, that's, that wasn't my point. The reason I, I told the story is this. As outrageous as it sounds for me to purchase a broken table for $10,000, how much more outrageous is it that the God of the universe, who is altogether worthy, looks at us and says, I want to buy you. And he decides to buy us with his very own life and blood and body. Like how much more incredible is our redemption that though we were not impressive, not all that great in the eyes of the world, that we're broken and sinful and rebellious and want nothing to do with God, God pursues us and he comes after us and he buys us so that we might be brought into his marvelous kingdom. Like, how much better is that redemption? He gives us his righteousness by living a perfect life. He pays for our sin and makes us holy by dying on the cross. And then he rises from the dead to show us where true life is found. If you are a Christian, this is your story. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know this is the invitation to you. To let Jesus live on your behalf. To let your worth be found in him. So lastly... What's our response in light of this? Verse 31 simply says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We boast in the Lord. What, is, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think, I think we, we, we normally associate with being a Christian as kind of repenting of our sins. We, we turn away from, from the bad things we've done. I think what this passage is telling us is that part of being a Christian is actually turning away from the good things that we've done. We, we repent of our good deeds. We look at our accumulation of well-done things, and we say, ah, forget it. I'm not trusting in that. I, the only thing I'm going to hope in is in what Jesus has done. Trust in him alone. One, one pastor said it this way. He said, I don't think there's going to be mirrors in heaven. 
<laughs> we're not going to get to heaven and all of a sudden we're like, oh, wow, I am so beautiful and impressive. I'm just going to stare at myself and marvel. He says, no, no, no. All I want in heaven is windows. Like, like, just help me always have a view of Jesus, of my Savior. He's the, he's the beautiful one here. If I could just always be looking at him, that would be enough. See, I think there might be this pushback here that, that if we're not a meritocracy, then we might be a mediocrity, right? Like, if we don't earn our self-worth, when we just, like, kick it on the couch and, like, whoever, whatever, it doesn't really matter what I do. Actually, no, I think one of the ways we boast is by doing good things. It's just now we do those things to, to point people to Jesus, not to make ourselves look impressive. I think another way we boast is actually when we fail, when we mess up, we're not crushed. It doesn't devastate us because we have a foundation that's firmer than what we've just failed at. We boast in Jesus by telling people about him, by doing the work of evangelism, by, by telling, hey, hey, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me tell you how he's changed me. 